Welcome to The Axe Change, the official podcast of the Fred C. Manning School of Business at Acadia University, Wolfville, Nova Scotia. Acadia University is a member of the Maple League of Universities, an association of premier, primarily undergraduate universities that consistently rank for higher educational quality in Canada. The School of Business at Acadia University is named after Fred C. Manning, the first person in Canada to receive the honor of having a business school named after him. To learn more about Acadia University and the business school, please visit acadiau.ca and business.acadiau.ca. And now, on to the podcast. everyone, my name is Sarah Baxter, and today will be your host of the Axe Change Podcast, the official podcast of the FC Manning School of Business Administration at Acadia University in Wolfville, Nova Scotia. Today we have as our guest, Dr. Roger Wirrell, past director and adjunct professor of the FC Manning School of Business and former director of the St. Francis Xavier University Extension Department. Roger, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. So today we'll be discussing three different routes that Maple Leaf Universities have taken to teach entrepreneurship, giving consideration to size and other barriers. Roger will share his perspective and experience with us in an effort to shed some light on this subject today. So I guess to begin, Roger, how did researching odd forms of entrepreneurship, such as home business and the ways in which government was involved, catch your interest and lead you to teach the subject? Uh, well, I'm not sure that uh, I would characterize home business as a home-based business as an odd form of entrepreneurship, but it certainly is one that um, did not catch the interest or the attention of uh, of government agencies um, uh, who are who mandated to promote economic development and entrepreneurship in uh, in the Maritime provinces until oh, until the um, 1990s, I guess, which is comparatively recent in the grand scheme of things. Um, I was at Mount Allison teaching when this, uh, when uh, home-based businesses caught my attention, and it had really nothing to do initially uh, with business itself. And and uh, my teaching in in the uh, school, uh, the uh, Department of Business, the BBA program at Mount Allison. Um, it caught my attention because uh, the Rural and Small Towns program at uh, Mount Allison, which was a, a program which focused on uh, rural development and uh, the development of towns, uh, planning for towns in, in the, uh, in the Atl- in Atlantic Canada, specifically to s- deal with housing problems and issues and planning uh, on, on a community basis to uh, provide uh, and encourage the uh, most useful housing um, to meet the needs in Atlantic Canada. And um, one thing that they noticed was um, the number of uh, houses within the housing <laughs> uh, market, as it were, uh, that housed home businesses. And they were interested in issues, you know, the kinds of things that urban and, and town planners are interested in, the design of streets, the, the, the kinds of regulations that should be on the, um, uh, that would govern the, uh, and regulate the, the building of houses and the use of houses. So that was their, their emphasis on this. And they were also interested in some of the social issues that are extend around housing. Um, you know, the fa- family life, um, designing, uh, 
housing accommodation better, you know, to be more useful or suitable for uh, family life and how it related to fa- problems in family life. So their, their take on it was, you know, as far away from the, the business <laughs> side, <laughs> at least to start with anyway, as possible. But, but they, they needed to get a large survey done. They had uh, funding. They had the funding to actually uh, do some uh, surveys of housing. They noticed a number of small of uh, home-based businesses in, in general, just informally, on the sorts of uh, the sorts of case studies and and the preliminary look at the you know the, the housing <laughs> uh, resource in in Atlantic Canada. So they trotted over to the business department and said, "Look, we're trying to do this survey." Um, they certainly have a lot of uh, experience in doing surveys at at, uh, at the rural small towns program, but um, we'd like to sort of include something in it and, or an aspect of it focusing on home-based business. So um, I agreed to uh, design a section of their survey and uh, uh, that would uh, focus on home businesses, and um, you know, with some preliminary questions. So they they included that in their. Uh, in their survey, and we suddenly realized the, ex- the, the percentage from the results, the percentage of housing units in Atlantic Canada that had home businesses was very, very, um, uh, well, it was amazing. Mm-hmm. Well, it, should, it shouldn't have amazed us, but if you ever thought, you know, if we'd ever thought about it seriously, but, you know, from the point of view of the, you know, the business school, which focused on businesses, <laughs> and businesses that were identified, you know, easily locatable, which tended to be businesses and, and larger businesses as well, uh, you know, in the town centers that were, were not not necessarily in, in people's homes. Um, and, and to the extent we thought that business had played any role in uh, in the home or the home played any role in business, you know, there were the, the usual obvious examples of primary industries like uh, agriculture. I mean, farmers lived on their land, they had their home on their land. But, oh, but other than that, um, you know, we, we hadn't really thought about it. So we, um, with further funding, we designed a study uh, to actually focus on specifically survey home home-based businesses, and that's that's what we ran within the within the business school, and I, I worked on that. That's how I got interested in it, and, and, and it was very very interesting in the sense that first of all we had to find since we were doing home businesses, we weren't just doing a random study of you know all the houses and you know homeowners and in. in uh, in the Maritimes, we, we wanted to focus on home-based businesses. Um, we had to find the darn things, <laughs> and and, uh, and this 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 uh, funding of the of the survey of home-based businesses was funded by, uh, in part, large part by the uh, Atlantic uh, ACOA, the Atlantic Canada Opportunities Agency, and of course their mandate was economic development. And um, they were interested in businesses from the very large to the very small, and uh, the uh, the idea was pitched to them about the home base business, and that uh, you know they had never thought about that seriously. Uh, they knew they knew there were home based businesses, but they never thought about that seriously as a focus of of study. You know uh, the kinds of micro enterprises, very very, but not just micro enterprises. As it turned out, when we uh, when we uh, we did our survey of Atlantic Canadian home businesses, home-based businesses that, uh, you know, there was a small percentage, but there was a significant percentage of some fairly large businesses that were that were uh, home-based or very sig- economically significant businesses. It wasn't just people working part-time. So to give you just a quick off-the-cuff example that everybody will be familiar with, a lot of funeral operators 
lived in the place where they did their business, you know, where they had their funeral homes. Yeah. So there, there, were, there, there were actual you know, types of businesses, if you'd stopped and think about it, went down, uh, you know, you'd expect, oh yeah, that's, not, that's just not somebody doing, you know, a part-time business out of a hobby or something. It's not just homemakers, you know, kind of carrying on. Um, there were a lot of serious businesses we hadn't really thought about. But how the hell do we find them all? How do you know yes. whether the XYZ funeral home that's listed <laughs> in, is actually um, also you know, the home of the owner or that's whatever? It's definitely you know, the challenge. The challenge. So what we did was, uh, be, be, because this was through ACOA, uh, they, they had the idea of using um, development agencies that were located in each region of each province of... Uh, of Atlantic Canada, except for the very large cities, like Halifax yeah. wasn't part of it, didn't, didn't really okay. belong to an RDA, and St. <laughs> John didn't, and so forth. Um, but in the valley here, there was one for the Annapolis Valley, and uh, and, and they were um, l they were community controlled. There was a board uh, that would run them, and they they would be involved in all kinds of you know uh, economic, but not just economic development, but because they were creatures of a color, their, their focus was on, on economic development projects. So were these RDAs uh, occurring while you were working at Mount Agent? Oh yeah, they, they had been organized um, back in the early 80s. And we were, when I was at Mount A, this, this would have been the uh, late 80s when we started working on the home-based home business and doing the survey. So we, we would simply... Uh, and, and as, as I understand it now, well, there are a lot fewer RDAs, and, and uh, the whole thing with the COA, that support of them has uh, certainly in the last 10 years um, decreased and changed, yes. and, and many of them are now no longer in, in existence after, well, I'd say about, uh, well, 25 years of work with, <laughs> but the COA changes its priorities, and and uh, certainly just as many businesses yeah, absolutely yeah. but they were certainly the the, uh, the RDA agents or the people that ran them anyway were certainly familiar in a very intimate way in most cases with all the businesses that were occurring within their uh, their boundaries and their jurisdiction and that included the home based businesses so we we, we did a quick um, uh I don't want to say survey, because we, 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 they weren't. Sur we contacted them all and said, "Can you give us, you know, your best list, your most okay. accurate list of home-based businesses that you know about that you can identify as home businesses?" And we got very, very good cooperation from uh, most of them, and we covered the four Atlantic provinces uh, for a survey population on the basis of their of their lists. And we sent out a mail-out survey, which is uh, we designed uh, in the business uh, business de uh, department or the commerce department, I should say. That's what it was <laughs> called at Mount A at the time, the commerce department. And then, of course, rural and small towns sent it out, and uh, we got a, a really good response rate. It's fantastic. I mean, I think a lot of the uh, the um, <laughs> home-based businesses that were surveyed, and it was a long survey. It wasn't just our questions about business. It was more of the, you know, the rural small towns research program piling on other questions <laughs> concerning in what way did your home or your design of your home, what in what way did your family life affect oh, your business? Oh, that's very interesting. And how, you know, uh, you know, possible. They were concerned really with possible changes in the. Um, in the design of a home, um, and you know, that might be implemented through regulation because housing regulations were big enough, and actually they still are. But anyway, that would you know that would facilitate the improvement of uh, the business 
and all, but also what it was affecting within the home, the family life, and so on. So uh, th they had some interesting, <laughs> some interesting in interests in this as well. But uh, we uh, we had a tremendous response rate, um, and we identified uh, a fair number of um, interests and concerns, and it, what the uh, home-based owners identified as uh, uh, concerns of theirs, and we were also got a little bit of a clearer idea of the range of uh, home-based businesses. Uh, the, the range in situations, in some case, the, uh, the business that was being run was the, uh, you know, the, the main economic activity of uh, the family. Possibly the husband and wife were uh, joint owners, partners in a business. In, in, and running in, it out of their home. And running it out of their home. And in some cases, I mean, which was interesting from the for the rural and small towns point of view was uh, the impact on their family life of that and raising their kids. Sometimes kids would be involved in the business uh, either because, um, you know, seeing their parents, the business was such that they really saw a lot of their parents uh, carrying on business activity around the house. It might include, uh, you know, the production side of the business or it might include meeting with clients in, in, yeah, in they the would definitely have some interesting experiences. Yeah, they'd exactly, exactly, uh, which may turn them on or turn them off. Uh, <laughs> right. in, some, in some cases, that actually led to their participation in, 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 cool. in, in, in the business. So it sounds fair to say that you almost didn't lo go looking for entrepreneurship, but it found you through this research you were doing at Mount A. Yeah, as far as personally, my, my uh, life <laughs> as a prof, <laughs> yeah, I, I was... Um, I originally had been uh, trained, I got have an MBA in finance. I went to Mount A, uh, which is the smallest of the three <laughs> um, schools in Atlantic Canada anyway, you know, um, and certainly one of the small, must be close to one of the smallest on the national scene as well. So the, the Commerce Department only had about eight professors in it. The BBA program that was there did not really have any major, you know, a BBA with a major in. It was or, sorry, more, it was a BCom, yeah. But uh, to get it, they weren't BBAs. I have to keep this straight. <laughs> they were BCom. BBAs at X, BBAs at uh, Acadia, BComs at, uh, at Mount A. But anyway, they certainly didn't have the kind of specialization that you'd find at a larger school, and to a certain lesser extent than the larger schools that you'd find at Acadia or. Or X. Uh, both of the both of those uh, universities at the time had roughly double the number of teaching physicians at, in their business unit, whichever whether it was the commerce department or you know the business school or whatever mm -hmm. they called it. So as a result, at Mount A, um, you know th there were a lot fewer courses taught, and profs um, wound up um, teaching. Uh, a broader well they didn't you know there wasn't somebody who just taught finance you didn't have the ability for as much specialization that, exactly as far as uh, being uh, familiar with home-based businesses or even micro enterprise in general before I went to uh, to Mount A um, I had very little 
familiarity with it. It just sort of found me. Home-based yeah. business has found me, and then I sort of found micro-enterprise. And through, it just kept going from there. From, it just kept going from there. <laughs> <laughs> so we've kind of touched on this, but it sounds like from your time spent at Mount A, Cinevax, and then here at Acadia, which are three of the four Maple League schools, um, your experiences in supporting and teaching entrepreneurship have primarily been in small town, small business, that sort of context. That's, that's absolutely correct. So how do you think this has influenced your personal perspective of entrepreneurship? Would you see it more as a small business area of study or interest? As it worked out for me, um, I spent more time on um, small business, entrepreneurship in the context of small business, microenterprise, and so on. However, my actual uh, teaching special specialization uh, was in... Uh, as I say, in finance, and, and I taught a lot of business policy at, at Mount A. So this is when I'm at Mount A. Um, certainly had an interest in entrepreneurship, but it was much more of that kind of traditional interest. It was it wasn't it didn't involve teaching a course. It involved working working it into, you know, a, really a business policy course. And you uh, worked with the John Dobson Micro Enterprise Center at Mount A as well, correct? Yeah. Well, that 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 was it towards the end of my time at Mount A. Okay. Uh, that that. that uh, Mount A had the benefit of a, a donor, John Dobson, who had become interested in micro-enterprise um, and, and put the, uh, the money, contributed the money for the study of that. And that wasn't just home business. Uh, that was also, that was part of it. The work on home-based business and so forth had sort of, you know, aroused uh, interest from a number of people who hadn't been interested in, in microenterprise in uh, in Atlantic Canada. It was also the fact that uh, microenterprise was becoming much more of a, uh, a topic and a point of interest uh, in international development, uh, particularly in you know for uh, countries in Africa, South Asia, whose economies <laughs> you know were um, millions and millions of microenterprises, um, and where. Um, Microenterprises, whether home-based or not, were part of the survival strategies of um, you know many many a high percentage of the people, the population of the country, where they couldn't really wo work in formal businesses, that um, as we understand them, but because they didn't exist in, in a lot of their small towns and rural rural areas in uh, Bangladesh or in parts of Africa, uh, so they had to make their own enterprises, and of course they were on a very small scale with very very little um, little in the way of uh, uh, resources, certainly financial resources, but other resources like um, intellectual resources. Most of these, pe you know, most of them hadn't received much of an education, and so on. So, for institutions and organizations that were interested in uh, supporting, you know, uh, development, economic development, and social development that depended on it, sometimes the two together in these uh, third world countries, microenterprise and, and encouraging it and supporting it seeing how to develop it had become a major interest in, uh, in many areas, particularly in, uh, not so much in Atlantic Canada, but in Central Canada, where some of the large donors, ah, definitely. <laughs> one of whom happened to be connected to, <laughs> to Mount A, uh, reside. Now, there's another kind of aspect to this, at least it ties into my particular um, work with microenterprise, and that is the existence in Toronto at the same time of uh, an organization called Calmetto Foundation. 
and it was interested in microfinancing in the third world. So would you have worked in microfinance at Monet as well, or would that have only been no, in your no. future afterwards? No, that was, um, that was really afterwards. But what, what uh, came up in the connection while I was at Mount A anyway, at least during part of the time I was there, was um, a connection with the Calmetto Foundation in that they were experimenting with trying to apply microfinancing to small enterprise development in Atlantic Canada. They had um, a couple of operatives out here working in uh, Lockport, Nova Scotia, of all places. What they were doing was they had chosen 11 sites across uh, Canada to uh, run 11 towns, as it were. Some of them were on First Nations reserves. Some of them were on... Uh, in outports, I think there was one in Newfoundland as well, and so definitely one of the outports. Yeah, so yeah, what they were looking for were um, ec- economies on towns that had economies that were sort of on the margins. Okay, so it would be small town usually, and it would be in areas outside of the industrial heartland of uh, you know, Toronto or Quebec and um, or BC, obviously. Yeah. And I think there was there's one in Alberta somewhere. And they would try um, these experiments in microfinance. What they involved, did you want me to talk a little bit about uh, microfinance just to let people know? Yeah, what why it don't is? you give us a brief definition or description yeah, of what microfinance is um, for those non finance people out those there? Those non finance people out there. Well, microfinancing is obviously very small amounts of financing. Um, it tries to, uh, it's interested in setting up an organization or a structure that provides that financial assistance to small uh, enterprise owners who need small amounts of financing to get their businesses and their enterprises to grow or to become viable. But the loans themselves, the business loans, have to be set up so that they are economically viable for the lender. Uh, yes. So, I mean, what are the big problems? Well, obviously, with microenterprise, there are a large number of Microenterprises that come into existence and go out of exi- <laughs> out of existence. Um, Definitely very hard to make money on the small loans. Yeah, I mean, part of it's the markets that they're in, but yeah. part of it also is the um, sophistication and uh, you know the business sophistication, business maturity, or lack thereof of of the uh, of the. Borrowers. The borrowers. Yeah. Now, this comes up very a major is a major major issue in the international development area. If you're talking about trying to uh, run an economic development program in India, let's say, or Bangladesh, where you have uh, a lot of little towns. I mean, that populations are huge that are of of people in these in these countries which are living on what we would say are the margins and um, who rarely get much an opportunity to get much schooling who are just trying to learn how to how to run a business um, the second factor isn't just the education and the amount of economic resources but in some countries such as Bangladesh where you have a uh, a large population with religious views and so forth particularly concerning women and their place in society so there's a, this gets connected to gender issues as well because many of these businesses might be um, important an important source of income in the home uh, and they're run by women how can we make the borrowers who have a range of uh, characteristics that make it likely that they might 
fail in their business and default on their loans, how can we decrease the likelihood that they'll, they'll uh, default through either business conditions or sometimes natural conditions like floods? Uh, uh, in uh, <coughs> Bangladesh is a great example of that because of the, just the climate and the monsoon seasons and uh, just the natural propensity for rivers to overflow there and uh, you know to wipe out a village and then it has to be rebuilt the next year kind of thing. And there's <coughs> nothing you can do about that unfortunately. No there isn't. Well there are some things but, but you can't control the weather. <laughs> you can't control the weather. So there are a lot of factors some social some you know natural and so on. Um, well, the biggest uh, innovation in that area, <clears throat> and certainly it was be- it was it was uh, becoming known in uh, in the Canadian community of uh, organizations that are interested in international development or interested in in microenterprise, was the the innovation uh, of uh, a guy by the name of Muhammad Yunus in uh, Bangladesh of not just uh, providing financial support loans, but requiring that anyone that took the loans. Um, had to be part of um, what they called borrowers circles, which would be other people in their village or their town, uh, usually in the same status that they were. And the borrower circles would consist of borrowers who were responsible for each other's performance as borrowers repaying their loans. So they set up these social circles and they would sort of police each other because if you and I were in the same social borrower circle circle, and I was responsible for your loan and you were responsible for my loan, if you default, then I'm cut off. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to repay my loan and I, you know, right away. It definitely force us to hold each other accountable. Though. Well, that's right. And typically in the borrower circles, um, the, uh, the members of the borrower circle would approve each other's loans because I wouldn't want you to get a loan unless I was pretty sure that you were serious about <laughs> repaying it. But not just serious, but had the... The means to repay the it. The means to repay it, the capacity to carry on your little enterprise and, and meet the, you know, the monthly whatever, or the year, whatever the, the uh, schedule is, repay. yeah, for the repayment, you know, the slower paying off of the loan. Um, and um, and they would start off with small loans, and then of course, if you were able to repay a sl- small loan as an individual borrower, you get a slightly larger. You larger. get a slightly slightly okay. larger. Plus, in the case of uh, Mohammed Yunus's Grameen Bank, they also organized a social structure that um, made you more capable to re- so that so the, the little social groups that you would form, the borrowers groups, I should say, that you would form, would also uh, have access to and, and be um, encouraged to uh, have the Grameen Bank bring in um, educators uh, who might teach simple math or accounting, simple accounting, to help all, each member of the group manage their, their, uh, their loans and their businesses more effectively. And so your, your background and knowledge on this area and microfinance, that would have come from your time at St. Avex, correct? Well, no, actually that started with the, uh, when I was in the, as I say, the John Dobson uh, Microenterprise Center. Um, I started becoming aware of that because of the Calmetto Project, the two people that were working in Atlantic Canada, one down in, uh, in Lockport. They were, I was going down and looking at what they were doing. I did a couple of little workshops for their for their groups. Okay. And so, you know, that was just kind of on the side sort of thing. Um, but I became aware of microfinance on both the international 
scene because I was listening to the people from Calmetto who are just fascinated with it and were trying to incorporate innovations from it in their dealings with the Canadian experiment. Okay. And then, of course, one of the reasons that I wound up going to St. of X was uh, the woman who ran the Calmetto uh, Foundation at the time, um, she moved to St. of X to take on the Cody Yes, once you moved to St. of X, you and then were I followed. involved with the Cody Institute, correct? Yeah, well, I, I, that, it, that wasn't my primary responsibility. <clears throat> my primary responsibility was being director of the Extension Department. Did you begin with the Cody Institute, or were they simultaneous? No, they, they, um, they, uh, it was kind of, the sa at the same time, in, in moving to the, when I interviewed for the job of the Extension Department, I was interviewed not only by the president and some people from the Extension Department, but I was also interviewed by the director of the Cody Institute. Um, her name was Mary Coyle. In fact, she's been in the news very recently because um, she's still at X in a completely different capacity, but she's just been named, uh, Trudeau just named her as uh, his latest nomination for the Senate. You're listening to The Axe Change, the official podcast of the Fred C. Manning School of Business Administration, Acadia University, Wolfville, Nova Scotia. Podcast host Sarah Baxter interviews Dr. Roger Werrell, past director and adjunct professor of the Fred C. Manning School of Business and former director of the St. Francis Xavier University Extension Department. So while you were with the Cody Institute, you were working with co-ops and developing co-ops in the area, correct? Yeah, when I was with the Extension Department, I was working... Um, the Extension Department had a long... Well, has a long history that goes back to the 1920s. It predated the... preceded the Cody Institute, which is famous for its international... Um, Yes, it's development. Far for yeah, sure. yeah. The Cody, the sorry, the extension department started by it was started by Moses Cody, the guy who the Cody Institute is named after. It's kind of an interesting yeah, <laughs> historical uh, irony. But but um, he uh, and a number of other priests, one of whom was called uh, Jimmy Tompkins. Those two are, are are famous up in northeastern. Nova Scotia for, for starting the extension program there. And it was back in the 20s when life was hard, even before the Depression. Life was hard in the fishing communities of uh, northeastern Cape Breton. And so what, uh, what happened was that the two, two of them started with respect to uh, doing extension education, you know, like teaching math courses in Canso and things like that. But they were really social activists, and the real issue was, you know, what can you do for the fishing, the fishermen? I mean, it's one thing to have a, you know, arithmetic course or something, but they needed... But how can you help them? Yes, how can you help organize them to help themselves? And so the two of them, particularly Jimmy Tompkins, who uh, got into a... I don't remember what... can't remember what the dispute with the bishop was uh, <laughs> in that... Uh, diocese, uh, you know, the Antigonish diocese. But anyway, he was a vice president at uh, St. of X, and the bishop exiled him oh, wow. <laughs> to <laughs> Canso. <laughs> and Little Dover, which is a little town just south of Canso. And while he was there, he formed the first fisherman's co-op. So it was a co-op of fishermen, and it was really what we would call a marketing co-op. So they didn't have to deal one-on-one -on -one with some slick wholesaler who came up from Boston and, <laughs> you know, bought the fish for, you know, pennies. Way less than he should have. Um, yeah, they formed a, 
what would be a fisherman's co-op. They hired, the co-op would hire their own employees to do the, you know, to, to uh, do the marketing, but also some of the processing as well, um, you know, for packing and so forth, so that they could export the fish to the, get it to the markets. And they would control their own um, destiny, so to speak. That was the idea. Of course, they didn't literally totally control their own <laughs> destiny because in the end, you know, the, 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 the co-op itself had to deal with, you know, uh, buyers in Boston markets and so forth and, oh, and so on. Yeah. Have to yeah, all, all the stuff. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Except they were working together. But they were working together. They were, you know, it wasn't just me selling my little load. It was the, it was the, uh, the marketing co-op selling uh, your load with my load and a bunch of others, and they'd be consolidated, and they'd be able to ship, you know, X amount on a given day. They'd be able to guarantee certain, you know, a certain amount of quality in the overall load and processing, and they could even, you know, uh, they could even look, go to the trouble of looking for two uh, customers, one who'd buy, you know, a high quality load to go to the, you know, the, the New York restaurants or whatever, and, uh, you know, some other buyer who's servicing, uh, you know, the lower end of the market or something like that. They could do a lot of things as, a, as an organization that a single fisherman couldn't oh, do. Oh, absolutely. It gave a much wider reach and yeah. more potential there. And, of course, it also gave Cody a chance, Moses Cody, that is, a chance to really push other parts of the extension thing in terms of courses uh, for not just the fishermen, but also possibly for their families and kids and so forth. Um, and there was a schooling system, but it, it was a way of kind of socially getting people together to improve a lot of the uh, institutions and, and uh, organizations, or even to found organizations in addition to the co-op that might, uh, like, for medical care, um, that would that would benefit the town. Getting people. And that was their whole their whole philosophy, and of course that carried through the depression. Um, they started looking at other kinds of co-ops. Of course, the uh, the most famous, the one that we would most normally see or would have seen here until a few years ago, was Atlantic Co-op grocery stores. You know that are owned by the uh, by the users of the store, you know the customers of the store. So would Cody have started that or? Oh yeah, that 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 was um, late '30s. I think they were already doing that or, or starting starting that. Um, what grew to be Atlantic Co-op, you know, in terms of uh, an organization that was, you know, the looking after all the co-ops in uh, Atlantic, uh, the the um, the grocery store co-op, uh, that would have been organized in the 40s, I think. I, I don't have an actual date for that one, but it, was, it would certainly have been later. But, you know, new co-ops were constantly added to that. The overall organization for Atlantic Co-op added certainly new grocery stores, and they, got it, it, they took over or got into other kinds of co-ops as well, workers' co-ops or supporting workers' co-ops like Just Us and so on. Unfortunately, just to give your listeners a little context, Atlantic Co-op got out of the grocery store business very recently. Uh, you could go down when I was... can't find them anymore. You, they sold out to uh, Sobeys, the oh, remaining... Okay. Uh, and they, they became what's called Foodland is the brand name now. Uh, and that included co-ops like the one in New Minus that had been there for years. That's the one I joined when I got here to, you know, <laughs> to Wolfville. Uh, it was the closest co-op uh, to Wolfville. Uh, but it also, um, you know, included the one 
um, Sackville that wasn't there when I was in Sackville, but got built. You know, the few profs really got the town going, and they <laughs> they, they uh, uh, we we had a save easy there. But they they managed to organize a, a, a Atlantic Co-op store, a grocery store, and, and they built a new structure right next to the um, to the uh, liquor store. So it was, yes. you know, competitively yes, well placed at that, that co-op. And uh, yeah, it was doing fairly well. I mean, and it was only about. Um, Oh, let's see. Well, it got sold out when the deal was made with um, Sobe, so it can't be more than uh, four years ago. It was vi- viable up until four years ago, even though it hadn't been constructed until about 2003 or four. I remember when it was being constructed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it wasn't, you know, when it finally got sold out, it wasn't anywhere near as old as the New Minus no, store. No, definitely not. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's one down in Barrington. There's a number of them along along the coast. And then, of course, in New Brunswick, there were there were a lot of uh, a lot of them. But many of the ones in New Brunswick, especially in Acadian New Brunswick, weren't actually connected with the Atlantic co-op. Oh, really? They were, they were um, although they used some of their logos and stuff, they were connected with the Desjardins movement, the co-ops in Quebec. Oh. Okay. Which didn't get sold out to Kobe. So if you're in New Brunswick, you can find a, a co-op store, a grocery co-op, uh, much like the same as it used to be in Bouctouche, um, in uh, well, so Campbellton and Caracat and, and that area. But I remember the one on Bouctouche because we used to, you know, the kids. I'd have to take the kids up to play hockey and the hockey <laughs> rink and stuff. If we wanted to go get a coffee or something, the co- the co-op was a couple of, a couple of blocks away <laughs> from the rink. <laughs> Funny the way you find these yeah. things. But anyway, I've wandered a bit here. But coming back to Co- uh, Moses Cody, um, they, they uh, certainly the extension department did much of the development work for new co-ops. It helped uh, you know support the co-ops in different ways, providing education for the managers of the co-ops and so on. And Cody was you know in charge of all of this. Moses Cody was up until. Um, well, he must have retired in, in the 50s. But while they were doing their co-op work, they caught the eye of, uh, uh, the extension department did, of um, people in South America who were trying to form co-ops, like coffee growers co-ops. So they started bothering the extension department, St. of X, send people down to show us how to do this. And so eventually that's what the Cody Institute was founded from. The demand in international development to export some of our, our uh, what, our um, our products, <laughs> our social development products, uh, from uh, the Maritimes. And so, would this have been connected to the Antigonish movement? This was the Antigonish it movement. Was the, okay. Both of them are, you know, what was called the Antigonish, because it's all was. It came from X. It came from Saint of X. And Antigonish, that's where it was. And it was the, you know, a lot of it was, as I said, you know, it was the religious side of it. The priests who, I mean, Antigone X was mostly, I think most of the profs and all the topics were priests up to a certain point. But anyway, it was, so it was connected to the church for a long time. And, um, and it was centered in Antigonish and it was centered at X. And then, um, the Cody Institute picked up the international side of it, and it was ironic. The international side grew, the demand for expertise in, in international development, and gradually the, um, the domestic side, the co-op uh, movement, be- really became very mature. Um, and the, the credit union movement had started as well. That was part of it as well. 
and they just form their own organizations and they uh, you know huge organizations uh, of all the co-op stores but not just co other kinds of co-ops and credit unions and they formed within their overall organizations their Atlantic wide organizations the capacity to have their own um, do their own development work internally. Um, you know, they had departments within the overall co-op uh, organization that would go and help individual co-ops um, innovate in terms of social innovation within their communities. And the poor old extension department gradually got out of the co-op business. Oh, okay. Um, <clears throat> by the time I got there, we still would run an annual... Um, conference of all the co-ops and social development organizations. And this is while you were a director of the extension department. Yeah, that was, you know, I, I got to I got to be the director and be the, you know, the center of attention <laughs> for a couple of years, but even That's that was sort a of a very prestigious position as well, well respected. Yeah, well, historically, yeah. Historically. <laughs> but I mean, the fact of the matter is that the, the thing that was happening in Atlantic Canada was organizations like ACOA were getting formed. And, it, you know, it, it was no longer centered on the extension department on an X. It became, you know, a lot of the uh, interest, the activity, the expertise became diffused. Um, uh, universities played more of a part. Um, certainly by the time I left X and, and left the the directorship of the extension department, I could come to Acadia and find Axby, the uh, Acadia Center, Axby Center for Social and Business Entrepreneurship, <coughs> which is now morphed into the um, Acadia Entrepreneurship Center. The uh, Acadia Entrepreneurship Center. Yeah. But <coughs> when I came to Acadia in the uh, in 2006, it had had a long history uh, as Axby before it changed form slightly. Um, and it was a center, it was, it was one of the four university centers for entrepreneurship in Atlantic Canada. ACOA had decided back in the, um, in the 90s, the early 90s, that you know, to facilitate economic development in Atlantic Canada, the university should be playing a role. And it thought, well, we'll pick four leaders, one in each province. So PEI, that's an easy choice to pick the leader because there's only one university. UPEI was the center. The obvious choice. The obvious choice for University Center for Entrepreneurship and PEI. And the same thing happened, or roughly the same thing happened for Newfoundland, because Memorial. really Memorial is, you know, there's there's a couple of other little university sort of things, but Memorial is really the university. Yeah. yeah. And so, and in New Brunswick, oh, there's a, it was a political problem, you know, because <laughs> um, you've got two populations, and you've got the French, the Acadian French, yeah, and French, and the English, and you've got, bilingual you know, so, so the issue is, oh, and it took them a while, but they figured out, especially since ACOA was centered, headquartered in Moncton, and UDM uh, is, is a Francophone university, but in fact, many of the, many of the, uh, most most of the teachers and, and staff really are bilingual. Yes. And and it's yes. everything on the university is in French, but they can they hold they can hold a conference or something, you know, as very easily as bilingual. And certainly in getting around doing projects and getting around the province, um, they wouldn't face the same problem as some or many of the professors might face in kind either school, you know, UNB yeah. or, or uh, Mount A. So anyway, so they chose Moncton. But the real Tough choice. What do you Scotia. do with the Nova Scotia? Because there are so many universities, and uh, 
you know, what do you do? Well, it turns out that uh, a guy by the name of Chris Pelham had had an idea for something like this before ACOA did, um, around 1989, okay. uh, 1990, somewhere in there. And he had, he had lobbied to set up a center for entrepreneurship here, and things were sort of uh, in midstream. They had actually got something going, but, but when the ACOA put out the you know, the proposal for a university center, he managed to convince the powers that be at Acadia to get behind his candidacy. And he already had something going, as opposed to, uh, there was, you know, the others were starting from a standing start. Uh, You know, obviously, uh, some you would have (laughs) wanted to put something in here, because they certainly had, you know, at the time, and uh, and still do have a, you know, a very strong business school and that kind of thing, and they'd see that. but anyway, Acadia got it. Axby became the um, the uh, Nova Scotia University Entrepreneurship Center, and uh, as I say, it's, it it morphed over time, uh, and um, and you now are working <laughs> as a co-op student for for it in its yes, in its current the form. Yeah. So you finally found your place here at Acadia after Manet and Saint Yeah. You had a very interesting opportunity to help develop this sort of entrepreneurial culture. I yeah. Guess. Well, what was interesting here, in part, was you know what attracted me here was the uh, was the fact that it did have things like the Axby at the time, what was called Axby, uh, as something that I could relate to from former. Experience. experience and um, and then of course I came as a director of the business school so I could really focus on how do you really integrate some of these things going on you uh, had a very unique opportunity there both yes the with director with, of the school uh, professor and with your background in entrepreneurship you could really tie that into the school a- abs- absolutely but things things did have to be developed in the school itself you know it's a, it was it, it's a small school of business it's not as small as Mount A or it wasn't at the time as small as Mount A still isn't but um, you know like X it, where the you know the business school I didn't really do very much the business school there it was a lot it was a bit bigger than Mount A but it, it was you know they tried to emulate just being a, even even though they were in the home of the you know the uh, Antigonish movement they they really tried to uh, you know emulate a large university like Dal or, or, or SMU they had a few more profs than Mount A but they you know it's difficult to do with the special you know the, the lack of ability to specialize would you say the school's grown to where it is now? It's larger than it was then, or is it still around the same size? It's about the same size. They face the same issues, not, you know, the the financial constraints. It's it's rather interesting. I don't want to get into a long discussion about <laughs> the financial constraints of three, the three small universities, but Mount A had the fewest financial constraints over the time that I've been here in Atlantic Canada. Okay. Uh, they never, you know, they, <laughs> they never really had crisis situations. Um... Saint of X got into trouble with some of uh, President Riley, who was president at the time I was hired. Some of his projects for rebuilding the campus and so forth. They got into some financial constraints uh, and some financial issues, um, but never as um, as severe as Acadia ran into when I first came here. I didn't realize, <laughs> and of course, it's 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 cleared up a bit and worked their way out, but. In, in doing anything new, that's at a university. That's the first thing you have to. You, you have can to you can fool money. around uh, at the margins. You can do some int- you know a lot of interesting things, but in the end, if you really want to, you need money. To you need money, and, and um, you know if you're in a, if you're in an institution that is you know 
really concerned about it because they do have some serious financial constraints. Um, so I came to Acadia, and one of the things I was interested in was the, uh, you know, the, the School of Business and its the entrepreneur's footprint there. So you would have worked really closely with students then as the director and also a professor while you were here. Yeah. Did yeah. you also have the opportunity to work with the community at all? I know Wolfville is known as a very entrepreneurial community itself. Yeah, not not as much as I would have liked. As the as the director of the School of Business, I was kind of, you know, I was on the board of the directors of AXPE. I did a few things with AXPE. But really my my um, my interest was in what to, to what extent can we... To what extent can we in the business school use AXPE to get our students into um, a closer contact uh, with the community and with the possibility of, you know, uh, being of service to the community and at the same time fostering our students' understanding of entrepreneurship. So this was a kind of a slow road to follow, but over the course of the time I was here as director, certainly we, um, we started to look at entrepreneurship and at specialization in general as something we really needed to work on to increase our student enrollments. So spe by specialization, I mean, we, did, we didn't have any degrees with majors. So the majors here. would be a new addition since yeah. you've been here? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. I mean, that had to be done because one of the constraints financial was as a result of fall drops in enrollment here. And you've got to attract students. And so what's the product? Six, yes. Six and, majors? And a lot of people. I mean, they could get majors at X. Not a wide variety, but they could get some. And they could even, but after I left, get, you know, a major in accounting, at, for example, at, uh, at Mount A. Although it was, it was called a major. But anyway. <laughs> and so now we have six majors here. Yeah. So now we have six. We began with marketing and accounting, but we... The, the hiring process uh, prospects improved towards the end of my directorship and when Ian Hutchinson became director they improved quite, quite even further so we were able to hire now we have two we had no professors of entrepreneurship when I became we didn't have positions for them we now have two <laughs> yes yeah, so, so it's possible to get your entrepreneurial yeah, major here you can, get your, so you can do more courses that have an entrepreneurship bent personally when I came there was no one teaching entrepreneurship but we had two courses on the books that needed to be taught if, <laughs> if we were going to keep them. So at different times I taught them. One was new venture creation, which we still have, and which is yeah. the kind of the capstone Definitely course, course you know, in, in our major, sure. which makes, and it's very typical at most universities that that is a, that is the capstone course, you know, for the entrepreneurship program. And we had another one, which is um, usually thrown into the entrepreneur. It makes sense to throw it into the entrepreneurship um, major, as it were. Uh, it's called small business management, and it gets, you know, it basically, depending on how you teach it, it can get students out into the community and face-to-face -face yeah. with entrepreneurs, certainly with small business owners, and many of them are in situations that, you know, have an entrepreneurial, er, you know, necessity. There's entrepreneurial issues. They're, they may not think of themselves as, I'm an entrepreneur now, I've got my business, but they, they shouldn't be turning off their identification as an entrepreneur because they still have... In order to survive as a small business and to grow as a small business, they've got to be entrepreneurial. Absolutely. So, Definitely. so that that's my experience here. Um, was through those my experience with entrepreneurship. So and you I, definitely I, have a wide range of experiences there. Just even just from those three schools that you've been at. Recently. Oh well, ab absolutely. Um, so, can you provide any insights into the ways that 
entrepreneurship development and community economic development have changed over the years, or at least from what you've seen through your experiences? How? Yeah. Well, certainly it's um, from what I've I've seen at the three universities anyway, and in the context of ACOA and some of the other out of my work uh, as a, in the extension department at. Um, at X, I wound up being in contact with a number of community organizations, not-for-profit or uh, corporations and things like that. So taking all of that into account as far as um, work with entrepreneurship, what's changed is certainly the awareness of the need to actually be systematic uh, in one's approach if you're an educator or economic developer <laughs> and so on, to pay attention to, the, to, to entrepreneurship and how it can be taught, not just as a university, or not even primarily as a university subject, although you want university graduates, but how it can be um, taught in a way to actual entrepreneurs, people. To inspire the, yeah, the next generation. To inspire the next generation. Uh, to not just to inspire the next generation, and that's, it'll have two effects. If students, if, if students are participating in it, in dealing with the community and encouraging entrepreneurship, um, they will be inspired to then, be, but it's also developing our current generation of, yes. of empowering them as well. Yeah, entrepreneurs who are in, who are in, uh, uh, in the process of, of uh, now, in the process of uh, developing enterprises. Um, they're already in enterprises, but enterprises never cease to need development. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. At least if you want any you know, chance of long-term success with them. <laughs> so, yeah, um, uh, that certainly, that awareness is there. Then the second awareness is the extent to which um, entrepreneurship and developing entrepreneurs and supporting entrepreneurs requires looking at what they're doing as having not just, you know, the business implications and the business side of it, but having a lot of other, um, as, on the social side, um, issues and background and environmental factors that um, they need, they need to manage, um, and that we should be concerned about and be able to deal with in in our capacities as either educators and forming entrepreneurs, but also as participating in the community in terms of supporting entrepreneurs that are already out there in the community, and and it's not just simply uh, that they need a whole bunch of business courses like you find at the university, um, but although we're not dealing with the same dimension of social needs as we would be with micro-enterprises in Bangladesh. Definitely very different. Uh, we would still, we, we still, um, there are still family issues, managing family issues, uh, particularly in the, in the small business community. And not just the home-based business, but also the small business community, and other kinds of social issues um, that are interwoven into the you know the, the challenges that, that, that entrepreneurs face. So it's a lot more complex than just a university course in entrepreneurship. <laughs> um, Definitely. Yeah. So certainly, there's more of an awareness of that. Um, and lastly, I think there's more of an awareness by government. For being yeah, involved in that, with yeah, the yeah. And organizations yeah. such as that. Yeah, exactly. And, and I mean, they, they certainly show that there's an awareness that they need to be involved. At, 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 at not just uh, having an entrepreneurship, uh, sorry, a conference for you know entrepreneurs from Silicon Valley to come and talk about things, but they've got to be. Uh, they 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 need a way to uh, systematically uh, reach business, small business owners, entrepreneurs, so on, um, down in the 
small towns in Lockport. <laughs> and I think, you know, I think you see the, uh, the results in terms of, I'm not sure how effective uh, they are on the global scale of effectiveness. They certainly are positive in some sense. Um, you know, the kinds of um, community development and um, the organizations the, uh, and the uh, community economic development. Uh, organizations that have grown up over the last 30 years and have done various things and have had a, you know, yeah, definitely a positive impact. For yeah. sure, I would agree very with much, that. Very much, very much. So as we as we near the end here, I have okay. one final question for you. Uh oh, what's that? Uh, <laughs> hopefully, it's not too hard. But as we've discussed, <laughs> you've worked at three of the four Maple League universities. You spent time at Mount A, Saint Avex, and also here at Acadia. So what do you think makes these Maple League universities so special, and particularly with respect to the ways that universities such as Acadia, Mount A and X, approach business and entrepreneurship? Yeah. I'll start off by what makes these universities special for all their programs. Right? I mean, they do have differences among the three, <laughs> although when you look at them, the one, the one factor, you know, that, uh, and it comes from my personal experience with my two kids. Uh, number one, my son went to Queens. <laughs> number two, my daughter came to Acadia. Um, they both did the same area of study, marine biology. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So we've got here a really little interesting experiment, you know, and it, I think yes. it'll tra it translates, it's not just because of that discipline, it translates over the whole thing from Across everything all I've programs, seen. definitely. So the big difference is um, they both did honors, not just marine biology, but honors. Um, my son had a, a supervisor, like you have here if you're doing honors, and he saw that supervisor twice during the year. Wow. That was it? That was it. Um, wow. he, it's not like he was totally unsupervised. The supervisor had a couple of grad students because working because, I mean, there are a lot of grad students at Queens. It's a large it's university. A large university. Much larger than and sure. Yes, exactly. And professors there get a lot, you know, have a, um, a good track record for getting funding for research that supports a lot of these grad students and okay. stuff like that and the infrastructure. And the university, you know, has set up grad programs, which, again, attract dollars from the government to support those grad programs, and part of the do those dollars go to supporting the grad students uh, who are in them. So it's a complex set of factors. But anyway, it's not like he was totally unsupervised, but he, n he rarely got to talk with faculty. Mm -hmm, only a few times. And, you know, it's nice talking to grad students, and I don't want to say grad students are not, you know, a positive experience, but you cannot compare. Exactly. It's a different experience. Um, and you certainly don't get the feel of being in in where all the action is and talking to somebody <laughs> who's in the action and yeah. then, you know, being able to actually see that action. It's very different than speaking with someone who yeah. has the experience as opposed to who's yeah. studying it. Now, my daughter, on the other hand, um, worked with uh, Graham Dayborn, who's okay. retired now. <laughs> and uh, and she, uh, she had, a, for her honors uh, research out here in the Bay of Fundy, she... Um, had another guy uh, who she saw every day, two marine biologists, and uh, she'd see both of them on a daily basis. They'd be asking her how one thing or another went. I mean, it was a very close cut. Yeah, very, very. And, you know, the same sort of camaraderie uh, was extended to all the grad, uh, to, the, not yeah. to, to all the honor students Absolutely. and so forth. And there were grad students around, and she interacted with grad students, but it wasn't like a substitute. Both, yeah, it wasn't a substitute right. for the supervision she got from. Okay. And I, you know, this is, this is not 
untypical of all of the uh, disciplines here and the same sort of thing in um, I would definitely agree with it like my personal experience at the business school you know your professors and you can stop by and speak to them whenever which and for people doing entrepreneurship it's also interesting in I think uh, you know in entrepreneurship studies because most of the profs I mean I certainly know that um, the prof who taught entrepreneurship before I came, <laughs> leaving me with pick up the course <laughs> uh, out of necessity because we didn't have anybody else, but uh, had close connections. It's a small town. It's a small university. The ties between the, the professors and, in particular for entrepreneurship, the business community, just the informal ties, are really, really good. Definitely very unique, too. Like You don't find the similar environment you find here in Wolfville, many other places. No, I mean, and uh, the the in the sense that uh, certainly the small town environment is the same in in in, in Sackville and in uh, Antigonish. The fact that it is small town, the, the tight connections, and now there are some serious differences in in the certainly Sackville is not just the smallest university, but it's also the smallest town. It's a very small town. A very yes. small town, and even though um, it's closer to Moncton than Antigonish is to any other, <laughs> you know, metropolitan center. Um, it's still, <clears throat> you know, the students are doing their studies and they're, they're depending on their outreach for opportunities to, to do research or to do um, any kind of community work at all uh, on, on what's in Sackville. So it's, it is very limited, more limited than it is in Antigonish and certainly more limited than it, than it is in Wolfville. But, but basically, you know, you get, you get the same. Very easy. similar atmospheres. Yeah. yeah. So we've been speaking today with Dr. Roger Werrell, the past director and adjunct professor of the Fred C. Manning School of Business here at Acadia and also a former director of the St. Francis Xavier University Extension Department. Roger, thank you very much for joining us here today and sharing some insight. Well, thank you for having me. I enjoyed it very much. And until next time, I'm Sarah Baxter. The Exchange Podcast is produced by the Fred C. Manning School of Business Administration at Acadia University using studio facilities provided by Axe Radio. This is a volunteer production. If you'd like to support the Axe Change podcast, please see podcast under the news and events tab on the business homepage at business.kbau.ca. Thank you. Axe Change would like to thank Paul Callahan, Jonathan Campbell, Kendrick Carmichael, Dwayne Curry, Ian Feltmate, Mike Kennedy, Ryan McNeil, Michael Shepard, Connor Vibert, and Blake Ward. Music is Pickup Truck by Silent Partner, accessed copyright-free at the YouTube Audio Library. Listen to the Axe Change podcast on the News and Events tab on the business homepage or at SoundCloud under Axe Change. Until next time, I'm Brianna Hike. Here's an Acadia spirit. <laughs>